Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Two Narrigs podcast. I'm your host, James, and I'm joined as always by my good friend, Timina. Hi, everyone. B is the producer, as always. How are you, B? Good, no. And our administration support, Katie Carroll, is here. How are you, Katie? Nice. Great. It's your first time in the studio. Well, it's good to have you here, even if you are from Manhattan. Frank Horgan, you're our guest today. You have a similar story to ourselves, and you're a trained counsellor, and you're a community worker. But we go way back, for the people that don't know you, do you want to introduce yourself, tell us about where you're from, what it was like growing up for you? Yeah. My name is Frank Horgan, first of all, I'm originally from East Cork, Middleton. I was born down there, big family, 17, 18 of us, or something like did that. Did they call you Hoggy? Hoggy? No, my brothers were Hoggy. I, I did all call me Frankie, but I like Frank, you know what I mean? Yeah, Horgan's a pure cock name, Hoggy, isn't it? Hoggy, they all yeah. Hoggy, but my, my, one of my younger brothers is the Hoggy guy, yeah. so I'm just Frankie. Frankie I yeah. like Frank, you know? Yeah. So look, I grew up down there, and I suppose, look, at a young age, I suppose, in the house I grew up in, look, no disrespect to anybody in the house, but my father would have been an alcoholic, but he wouldn't have thought so, to be honest, John. So it was a difficult house, a difficult environment. How many up. siblings had you got? I have 10 brothers and six six sisters, five sisters, five sisters. What's the, what's the, what's the oldest and the youngest? At the moment, I suppose um, the youngest, I'd say, is about 40 at the moment. But like I have three or four brothers deceased at the moment. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. I suppose one of those would be from alcohol poisoning. Go ahead. Do you know what I mean? So, like... Uh, in, in, in Middleton, within an estate, or was it I, on, on the countryside? Up behind the hurling pitch. So I was in the just outside of the town, up behind the supermarkets, you know what I mean? Um, 60 seconds, you're down the main street, like, you know. Did you play any over the sport down the Middleton? No, because when I was younger, I was, I, I suppose, look, at, at, at a very young age, my, my first court appearance, I was nine. Away. Yeah, so I, I, I was... In the court in Middleton? In Middleton, yeah. That courthouse there on the left hand side. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so look, at the age of nine was my first conviction. Yeah. And, and by the time I was 12, my brother, I, I was, you know, I was about 11. I had a brother, I was 11, brother 12, another 13. So my brother that was 12, he was after being in court three times that time. So he got four years and letter, letter Kinney or letter Frack, I can't remember which one. But I was convicted at the age of uh, nine, my first conviction. And then I got a 12-month probation and I broke that again. I was up at the age of 10 and then I was back in court at 11. And my brother then got four years. So, And I had, I, I had one day to go before the probation period was up. So I would have had Tim Farrell in my life at that time. Remember probation Tim, officer. Yeah. And, um, and I suppose, look, at the time, I was only 12. I, I was into 
my antics then, but I didn't know why, you know. Mm. Um, I was going to school, but I couldn't concentrate because I suppose there was a lot of, I suppose it wasn't pleasant house, you know, there was a lot of violence yeah. and a lot of disturbances. You were going to school, you're full of stress. Yeah, and I mean, no wonder I couldn't concentrate, like, so I think I started drinking, I think it was 13 and a half when I first took my drink, you know, my first drink. And I was going into first year, first year in, in technical school, and all I was remember walking back at lunchtime, and there'd be a car pull up, and they'd be dragged into it, into the police station, and clattered in the back of the head, and everything was done. I'd be brought in for it, you know. So I was always kind of known as troublemaker, like you know, this is our, you know. Um, I would walk down the street if somebody looking me crooked, I'd slap them like and box them around the best, that kind of stuff, you know, yeah. stupid stuff. Do you know why that you were like that? Because I, you were used to violence yeah. in the family home. I didn't understand it at the time because mm. we dealt. People that grow up in, yeah. in environments where there's violence, mm. and I grew up in a violent environment as well, they think it's okay mm. to do that. I thought it was okay. Yeah. You obviously thought it was okay. Yeah. You know, and um, and that's the explanation for it. No, yeah. it's not justifiable. No. But that, that is why we yeah. do things like that. We yeah. deal with conflict through violence, and that's how we learned. You know, today my kids don't deal with conflict, mm. with violence. They try to sit down and they talk about it. Yeah. Oh, a few words that you don't like but yeah. that's it really isn't it Frank yeah and I, and I thought I suppose at that time I thought this was the norm in everybody's house like yeah, me too and we didn't talk about it like and I suppose by the, by the age by the age of 13 and 14 like if I heard the front door opening in the house like I'd open the window onto the ledge and sleep out in the field because yeah. it'd be more peaceful and, and he said my father was very sick at the time very ill mm. but he didn't see nothing wrong with it and I suppose he was very unpredictable because, like, my father could come in, no, three o'clock, and he'd be hammered, like, and and then some nights when he'd come in in the evening, like, if he knew you were smoking, you know, mm. he'd come in, he'd offer a cigarette, like, and it was all, all okay, you know, mm. and then the next night when he'd come in, he'd give us a cigarette, and the ones who take it then would get mangled, like, you know, so it was it was a tough environment, and I said by the age of thirteen and a half, I decided I left school because, I suppose I. Being being arrested and being dragged into the police station, stuff like that. You know, it was just, I, I couldn't understand why I couldn't fuck in school because. There must I, have been a lot of poverty in your home as well, Frank, I'd say. Was there things were tough because, yeah. you know, like my father would have been on um, illness, benefit, mm. in a, illness benefit and stuff like that. I had another, an older brother at the time, he was 17. I think I was 12 at the time because I always remember. I, I was only 12 when he. He got he, he was involved in an accident up in Long Town area at that time, and he died six months later. Sorry to hear that. The, the drinking in the home mm. then from my father when he used to come out like just the, the behaviour and stuff. Mm. But look, we just I didn't know at the time, but looking back today, like I suppose I've learned the skills to be able to survive through all of that. How, and, how did how did something like that affect you and your and your siblings, like your older brother dying, like um, that? Yeah, I suppose thinking of my older sister, she would have been. She, she's, I'm just trying to think, she would have been married in the house. Yeah. My other sister was working. My brother was working. And he, he had a good head in him at the time because he used to buy a few fags, box of fags, and he'd spread them out and he'd go out and have a few drinks. So there was no addiction issues. But but the chaos inside in the family home, then with the father drinking every night and up and down to the hospital and stuff like that. And it was, you know, repetitive listening to it. And um, yeah. I suppose when I started drinking at 13 and a half, I started going to Red Barn and y'all, you know. It was mm -hmm. it was just, I, I was able to get into nightclubs. At the time, you had the ballroom dancing stuff. So I was able to get, when you work with um, carnivals that time, you get the passes. So, like, 
was able to get in with them. But when I started going to Red Baron Yard at, at, at 13 half, even 14, it was drinking. And I remember one day my father comes in and he says to me, uh, sit down. And I said, yeah, he said, uh, I heard you could drink me under the table, like, you know. Because somebody told him I went down, I ordered, I think, 14 double rums and six bottles of half and I just threw them down, you know. And, and like, when I used to drink, like, I, I didn't know, I used, to, I used to drink to get drunk, like, you know. And I, I think to get away from it, but I wasn't too sure, you know. Mm. And every time I got to Red Barn then, like, I'd be in Red Barn for a couple of weeks, you know. And I used to love going down Sunday night. After a long weekend, we'd sleep on the beach and stay there on Monday as well. But, um, and there would be a group of friends. And yeah, all the bus, butlers but used to drive the buses down, just get on. And I used to, work, I used to, I started working in a chip shop at 14 and a half. So I had, I had my own money coming in, but I'd never had enough. Like my mother would always tap for me Sunday night from a neighbour or something like that for me to go out of a Sunday night. Yeah. Would this be the 80s, Frank? Um, or the... I was just trying to think. I was I was fourteen. Oh yeah, we were seventy four, seventy four. I was born in nineteen sixty. Born. I just uh, they were definitely the yeah. So early seventies, mid seventies, because that time I remember the Monday mornings for me. I used to go into the, a pub called the Mill Wheel, and when you go in there, the place used to be joined there. And the only reason I used to go in there was to play poker to make mm. more money. And the other place was um, another pub downtown. There was a Sunday night poker school there before you go to Ribbon. So I was able to kind of slip an odd card from the bottom of the deck and pull the last three that I had done, do you know what I mean? And kind of try to make money. So I knew how to do things and it was all about making money to get out. But um, I suppose at age 14 and a half like that, like um, I used to go to Red Barn and stay out. And then I used to come to the city when I was 16 because I used to go to the Stardust. People used to tell me I was mad because the boot boys would kick the head off you, all this stuff, you know? Mm. And then I started coming up to the Stardust like, and, I could be walking down Park. Where was that? It was down in the Grand Parade that time. You know, the Stardust was there. The same fellow owned in Red Barn. Wanted it. Lucy wanted it. Like, and Dan Murray used to be on the door at him, big Dan Murray. Like, and, and with Red Barn, then when he used to be down there, like I'd be in Red Barn and we'd get involved in an altercation in the hall. Like, and, and we had a lot of stuff going on between the people in Yall, right? And I'd get phone calls in Milton, like, you're going to get it tonight. So I'd make sure I get down there and I'd wait till they come in and put me into the toilet, you know? Mm-hmm. Come on, let's do it. But every, every couple of weeks I would be barred from the club and you're yeah. like red barred from the hall like, because because of the, what was happening. Yeah. And it was that violence coming out like, when, when I did, drank. Like, did you get through secondary school or did you finish up? Uh, no. I, I, 13 and a half. I, 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 I went into first year, yeah. but the exams came then. Like, and I, I just uh, didn't, uh, like, I didn't have any confidence and I didn't uh, know what was wrong. I just pulled out, got a job. Yeah. and stayed out of school. So I finished school at 13 and a half. And just drinking then, went to Red Barn, coming yeah. up to the city. Yeah. And getting into mischief. Mischief. And I suppose when I was hanging around that time, there was a pub down in Milton, down Milton Arms Hotel, and I was hanging out. There was a couple of lads down there when I was kind of 16, 16, 17-ish. They were older than me a couple of years, so I was hanging around with them because I knew they were into a bit of blow, like, you know. Mm. And I spent six months knocking at the door with them like and eventually I remember the first night they gave me they gave in like and they gave it to me you know and um, I remember taking it and when I went away I, did, I said what do I do with this like so I made a one skinner and I had it and when I smoked it like it, ju- it just made me you know I had no more problems like that's mm. how I felt after having my first little blow like you know mm. so I started hanging out with them and then there were there was a band there, a couple of from Klein area they had a band and I started hanging out so then I got a job over in, um, in the Keys in the city. I was a tire fitter. So I was down Riverstone first and I transferred over. And um, I was tire fitting, but then I used to go to the old oak bar. So you could smoke away there because the guy who had it then at the time, you know, was the next guard. 
and the sun would be at the door, closing the door, and you could come in with your bit of hash and be dealing with whale, like, you know, yeah. doing that kind of stuff. So I used to throw a bit off to make a bit of money, and I was still working. So I was working there for a while, and I think what happened to me that time, I went to a party out in, out in the Black Rock Road one night, and I rang my mother to say, look, I won't be home tonight, right? And then, sure, I didn't know it, like, it was three or four, five, six months later, I'm not really sure. They came up with, my mother came up with my sister to the bus station to meet me because I was looking for 500 quid. I was I was in debt. It was 500 pound that time. Mm. I was in debt because I ordered for for drugs. like. And I was standing at the bus stop waiting for them to get out and they got out with the bus and they were looking around for me and I was standing there like, they didn't even know me because my hair was long. I was now yeah. shaving dirty clothes. Yeah. And uh, we ran out of money because we were doing, I remember coming down to Black Rock, we were getting magic mushrooms at the time, right? And we ran out of magic mushrooms. Picking them like? Yeah, picking uh, them. And, and, like, ringing up off in Roaches Town, walking down the line, sure, I don't know what was going on. Mm. When the mushrooms were gone, then we used to do Pondrick sleeping tablets. What are they called? Pondrick sleeping tablets. They, they were, you get them in a capsule or a blue at the time, right? But when you take them, like, you think you sleep, but you don't. You're up three days, you know? Mm. And you wake up hungry, but you're not asleep, you know, that kind of way. Uh, and then you go for something to eat and you can't eat. So we had no money. I had no money that time to do that. So I got involved in with a, a crowd from the, another crowd from the north side up around the St. Luke's area. And I was getting my, my drugs on tick. And I hadn't the money to pay them, like, you know, and they were looking for me, like, and I think there was four, there was four or five brothers living in the same house as I was, staying, just parting. And then one day I was gone out and the door kicked in and they told me somebody was here with a weapon looking for you, like, and so, like, they were all freaked out, you know, but, um, it was mad, like, you know, um, being up around that time and, you know, like, I ended up in St. Anne's for a while. I don't know how long it's it was. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Go away. From, because like, I'd always remember being down in Middleton after coming back. Because when I arrived home, my father, you know, the long hair and the beard and the dirt and the shit. Mm. My father says to me, like, if you want to stay in this house, tidy yourself up. So the following morning, I got my mother to cut my beard and I went down and got a haircut and I put on a three-piece suit and my sister comes in and she was saying to me, like, what are you doing with yourself? I said, I'm working in the bank in Cork, you know? But sure, I was off my nuts because I used to wear a, a robe with uh, the bangs of sandals. You know what I mean? <laughs> like Alex Higgins. Yeah. And my sister was telling me one time she was talking to her neighbour down outside the house, like, you know? And oh, did, said, you, did you really think you were working in the bank? <laughs> no, I've been right. saying that all right. All right. Because prior to that, I was wearing a, ro a monk's robe for a while with the sandals. Yeah. And she was telling me, she was talking to me there, and my neighbor says, that's your brother. I don't know him at all. Like, I was, <laughs> I still wasn't right, but I, I was unwell from taking the acid for about six months, like, you know. And um, I used to go down to my GP then, and when I was inside in the waiting room, the parent, I didn't know what it was, but I was paranoid, like. Psychosis. And I was screaming and roaring, so he'd take me out in the tunnel room, because I said I'd wait, there's no problem. But I went and met him for a couple of maybe two years. Yeah. And um, I came around again after about two years. I was normal. Because I remember one night I was going down to the pub to meet the lads, you know, and I was tripping like, and I fell into a hole and I was only looking at the sky. But sure, I was there for about two hours in the hole, like looking at the sky off well. my face with the, with the LSD. Like, but um, How long were you in St. Anne's for? I don't know. Was it a few days or a few weeks? I haven't a clue. I tell you, all I remember was when I was inside in the room and they came in with the white coats, I was like this, you know. Uh, I didn't uh, know what was going on. Uh, you know what I mean? Um, going to my GP then, checking in with him and yeah. doing that kind of stuff. That sounds like a really mad period of life, man. How long did this go on for? About, I was seeing, linking with doctor about 
between anywhere between 12 and, and two, 12 months and two years. But I just, oh, but this just going back. And I think, I think my realization afterwards was I was tripping all the time uh-huh. and I, I, I found it hard to come back. Yeah. To not Look, you came back, Frank. I know. Because I like, know. there's a lot of fellas out there like from taking athletes yeah. like that and they're still fucked. Like. Mad, yeah. No, I was lucky. I was lucky. Do you know? And I suppose when I put down the drugs that time, the drinking took over. And I, I was drinking like any time I could, you know. And any night the weekends were always like if you get ready to go to Red Barn, like, you know, like Sunday night. Like if I was working Saturday night. Or Sunday night, I'd make sure I'm finished. I'd get the bus anyway. I'd get some way down to Red Barn. And if there's a bank holiday, you can sleep on the beach and stay there. You wouldn't have to come home. My parents never worried about me that way because yeah. you could go. But I suppose when the drugs went out of my life, they all went. I started drinking heavier. I got married when I was 20. And by I, my son was born in, in 19... I just try and think with Peter. 1980. I got married... I got married in July. My son was born in December, and um, my wife at that time we had we would have met when we were fifteen. I was up and down to a dance hall in Kill at the time and stuff. But um, I got married at twenty by the age of twenty one. I came home one day like and she was gone like you know yeah. and I had a clue. Somebody said she's gone, but and it was because of the violence and stuff and, and the shit I was bringing to, into the house, you know, and my behaviour. So what I did was. Um, did she she left with the kid and left yeah. She left, yeah, she left, yeah. She left that she was gone and I I didn't know what was going on. I was mm. kind of like I was so out of touch. And I suppose at that time I used to have a bottle of vodka, a bottle of whiskey and a bottle of brandy in the house, but I would have preferred the powers, you know what I mean? I'd swap it if I could in the pub for the brandy and stuff. And um I I got a job above in the creamery Mogili at the time, you know? And um I was doing shift work like and I I I, I drink before I go to if I was on sixty two I'd be up at three o'clock drinking. And when I finished at two o'clock I'd be in the pub all night and drinking and you know. And um uh, and then I decided one night, um I got I got um was it oh, oh, did I go in? I went into Saint Saint Stephen's Ward in Glenmoyer. Sassfield's Court. Court. I, I went to my GP and I, I had enough of it. You know, I, I knew I was gone. Like, I knew the mind was gone as well. So I went to my GP and I got a letter of a Friday for, to go to Sassfield's Court. What age were you, Frank? Sorry. Uh, it was 23 ish. Young man, like, yeah. you know, I was thinking it was a lot of serious. I think it was very early. Four, uh, 23, yeah. I'd say. Uh, 22, 23. Uh, but when I went to. Started very young. Yeah. And when, when I was in Sassfield's Court then, I, I I got the letter from the GP. So what I did when I went down to a pub called the Satellite on a Friday, and then I said I'd have a drink and I'd go. Monday morning I was still sitting down drinking in the pub, like you know, yeah. and I just broke down crying, like and I just couldn't understand. So I rang a taxi, and I always remember her name, Mrs. Maloney. She's a taxi service in Milton, and I rang her and asked her would she collect me in the pub. And I said I need to go to the hospital, so she collected me and brought me up. And the first night I went to Salisbury's Court, and I went in and gave him the letter and. You know, you're signed in and stuff. And sure, I was put into my room. And next thing, sure, half an hour later, I was down the hallway begging him to let me down to the village for for a drink. Like I was in bits, you know. Yeah. I was crying on my knees and my hands to get out of the place at, at that age. So when I was in there, I got friendly with these two guys. They were both Pats, right? And um, they, they were both what? Their names were Pat. Okay. Both yeah, them, yeah, like, yeah. And I became kind of got close with them, you know. Because um, when you're rattling the place like that, you don't want. You don't want to mix with anybody, but I got 
these two guys, I got, I got friendly with them and let them in a bit. So when I got out of, um, when I got out of hospital after my 30 day dry out, you know, they, it's a dry out period, like, you know, mm-hmm. I went back to work in the creamery at the time, like, and I remember going in and then the manager calls me into the office and he wanted to talk to me, like, I went in and sat down, like, and he said, can I ask you a question? Like, and I said, yeah. He said, what is it about you? Like, when you start drinking, you can't stop. And he said, something like that. And, and we left it at that then, you know. Yeah. And um, I was back at work anyway. And a few months later, I couldn't give you an exact time, but I met one of the Pats in the city one day and he was hammered, like. But I used to phone the other fella. So he was kind of gone on in my life, you know. Mm. I was going to meetings. I met a guy. There was a guy in, in recovery. He was 20 years around at the time, and I always remember it, like, and the priest, the local priest in Castle Martyr, had rang this guy to come up and talk to me at the time. So I went out and I met him on the bridge there where Pat, Pat, Pat Short's pub was there, Barry's had it yeah. at the time. And I was out on the bridge waiting, he came along, like, and we were talking away. And I was telling him what was going on, like, and I said, I can't fucking sleep. Like, you know, he says to me, and he need to around, he says to me, don't worry, no alcoholic never died in the lack of sleep. I thought he was going to give me a tablet to help me sleep, like, but he, he blew me out of the water with this. So he brought me to a meeting in Middleton that night, and I remember being at the meeting with him. And we were sitting at the meeting, and I can always remember who was doing the chair as well. And um, next thing, your man started sharing his story, like, and I was there, like, and I was saying, um, I tipped your man next to me. I said, you tell him about me, like, you know, uh-huh. totally in my own head. That happens like, you know? a lot, don't it? Yeah. yeah it so I was, going to, I was going to meetings for a while, and going on and off, maybe, you know. And I think um, I relapsed then again. That was your first introduction? That was my first. I was 21 when I got into the rooms at the time, yeah. I think the point there for the people listening and watching to elaborate on, like, sometimes you could be in a meeting like that and the person sharing, you there's so much identification mm-hmm. with the story that it, when you're early days, you yeah. think the one of the boys is after telling him to say yeah. this. Yeah. Yeah, you know, but yeah, it's just yeah. like that. We're just so like with similar experiences, yeah. different people and backgrounds, but it brings you down the same path. Mm. And I think at the meeting that time, I was waiting for everybody to start laughing and point the finger at me. You know, yeah. I, I just thought it was all a big setup, like, and they were after telling me about mm-hmm. me and stuff. But look, I struggled for the meetings. I was in and out, and I relapsed. And one night, I was inside work. I was on an evening shift. I was on a two to ten, and it was on sixteenth of June, nineteen eighty four. I'll always remember, right? So I, I went up to the office, to one of the offices, and I made a phone call to Pat. And I had a, a Mallow number for him. And uh, I went up to the office, and I rang, and sister answered the phone, and I said, I said, I just, can you speak to Pat, please? She said, I can't really talk. The kids are here. And I said, that's grand. Look, I'll ring back on it. And she turned around, and she said, look, Pat's dead. So that night, I made my decision. I didn't go to the pub after work. I went back to meetings and I haven't drank alcohol since that night. Since 1984. So it's 40 years next You're year. off to drink longer than I'm alive? Yeah. yeah. 1983, Pat. Uh, 1984, the 16th of June. So, how did, to, to kind of bring it up a little bit, mm-hmm. how did drugs and prison come into your life then? If the alcohol yeah. left? I was, I was I was doing well in recovery for a wide couple of years. Things were going well, so I was stuck in Mogili Deve- Development Association. Stuck in Mogili. Mogili followers won't be too fond of. But I was, I was I, somebody came to draw when I asked me, but I sign up with the soccer club, so I became yeah. a player, and then I, I became PRO. For Can the I club. guess your position? Huh? Can I guess your position? Go on. 
you look like a right full back to me. Centre half. I was mad centre half. A winger. A winger, yeah. Okay. So look, I joined up at the club to make the numbers. We were a small village. And then I started getting involved with the Morgilia Association. To, we were raising money for a tennis club and stuff like that. And yeah, yeah. I was sober and I was doing well. And then yeah. one night the priest knocked at the door. Like I remember a guy in recovery said to me, like, there'll be a day coming, there won't be enough hours in the day for you anymore. And I said to him, you're off your game. Like, And it was two years later when the priest came to the door knocking, he wanted me to do something else, no? And I was looked at the sky and said, God, is there enough time in life anymore for me? Like, you know? Mm. And um, I, I was I was okay. I was doing okay. Do you know, I was stuck. And next thing, I got a job in Middleton anyway. I was I was running a snooker club. Everybody knows my background, right? I was running a snooker club for two lads that had it at the time. And, and I was still clean, sober, going home, you know, the second son and going home at night time, the 11 o'clock bus, and I would have to go off from Castle Merta to Mogili, like. And uh, everything was going grand, you know. My life was good. I had no care. I used to cycle to Gary Rowe with my wife, and we'd have the kids and they were cross bears. And I think <laughs> it took me about 20 years to identify this, but I, I, I got it eventually, but I, I'll come back to it in a minute. But one night I was inside and work, and um, just tidying up around, this fella came up to me, he says, would, would you like to smoke, would you like to smoke a bit of ganj? I didn't know what he was on about. I said, what are you on about? He said, I said, yeah, a bit of pork and a bit of ash or something. He says, yeah, yeah. So I had a smoke. Mm -hmm. That was my first time trying it again, right? What a journey, like, you know, mm -hmm. from from then because... We're talking about 1980. Uh, 1981. 1981. 1991, right? Recovery, I was, I was, I was recovery, that yeah. And I, 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 was, I was happy, like, I was content. You're still going to meetings? Still, no, yeah. I tap in now and again because I tried to go outside of the city because of my, my own personal room as well. Yeah. But I had the smoke anyway and that just escalated. And by the end of... By the end of um, from the kind of 19 to 91 that happened and then 91 somebody said they were going to Henry's like mm -hmm. I said I'd go for a look like throw back an E like you know that was the end of it that was like, the end of it that was the end of it yeah and we then, all know that one <laughs> I started thinking then I suppose like you know it, it was hard to keep smoking and smoking was increasing at a daily basis smoking and work smoking on the way and like mm -hmm. I remember going to city you could have a joint in the fucking bus nobody took any notice like but the whole lot started growing out and I was there one day and I was saying like, how can I get make a free bit for myself, you know? Mm -hmm. So I remember buying a quarter rounds, you know, I get it for 30 and I was selling a 20 block, so I did 20 for myself for 10. Yeah. So then that kind of escalated up to a half an ounce, to a, an ounce, a bear, a mm -hmm. key. Mm -hmm. And then I got, I got associated with people on the north side. You know what I mean? I won't mention them, but they're very... Stay away from the Norris by. Norris by, you know? But I, I, I got... um. I got in with this crowd and I was getting my, my, my hash and I, and I was, I was passing it on to people. I was, you know, yeah. I never, I was distributing it in a way like, and then I had people coming to me and I'd give throat bars and keys and I was trying to make a few pounds and make free bit. When I got into the ease then like, um, it was just a tour. I tried it like, you know, so within three months, like I was in Henry's Thursday night, Saturday night. Mm -hmm. And if there was long weekends, like, and then what happened was by the, by the end of that year, I, my, my shifts were 11 to 11. So I'd been working at 11 in the morning by 10 past 11. I was anywhere in the country, like it's doing what I need to be doing, like, and um, just buzzing all day, like, and having somebody cover my shift and making money, just phone calls coming in, having somebody else sorted out and stuff like that. Uh, invincible in one way of feeling, like, but while I was working then, they'd be, the guards would be sitting outside the door because I was under surveillance all the time. And 
they'd be blocked and stopped and searched and stuff like that. My house out in Mogadi was searched at the time, like, and my wife had a bad experience. And I remember going up to pick up my school, my kids from school at the, the tech. They were only about 14, 13, 12 at the time. And I remember pulling up reading the echo and they just swarmed in. When my kids came out of school then, like, they, they saw me handcuffed, like, and mm -hmm. they were bits. But look, that struggle went on for a while, that, that them and me, you know? Yeah. And, and having to, I remember playing a game only with them. I, I just wanted to kind of wreck their heads, you know? My, my buddy was on the scanner and he was talking to me and he was telling me that they're watching you. So I went up and we got a box of that and we wrapped it up and he has a package. Is he worth the boys, you know? Is he worth it? He... They said, no, leave it to the lease. But he told me they lost me up around um, Silver Springs, you know? And I used to be kind of playing along with this. But look, I, I got into Henry scene at the time and then I got into the scene by knees and, you know. And How did it come to a head for you? I suppose that went on for, I went into Arab House at the time when my marriage, my marriage went that time. It was like a day of treatment sort when, of. When I got back with my, my marriage that time yeah. and, and the recovery, everything was going well. But when the, when the drugs came back into my life, like, like I was never present, like, you know, mm -hmm. I, I was out of a Thursday night. I mightn't get home again for God knows when. Or somebody might bring me home and throw me to bed Wednesday night and yeah. get up again and do it all again. Like mm. I went to Arab House and my, my wife was on the, the other side of the programme. I was working the programme and I was doing good. And 15 weeks intense phase in the in the Minnesota model. Yeah. And I got over the line and then one night a friend of mine was dropping me to the city at the time. And he says to me, will you skin up a joint for me? And it's in the glove compartment. So I skinned it up and I had a smoke with him. So when I went into group, I had to, I was going around trying to get a, a bogey urine, you know, a mm. clean one from somebody yeah. and have it in my pocket and I was parrying it over my head. So the first night I was in aftercare, I was, my head was mental, like I was destroyed mm. and I'm trying to hold it together. Like, so on the second night I went up, I just decided I to put my hand up, you know, I said, I'm after relapsing. So they pulled me over the group. And what that meant to me that night was unbelievable. I felt like a failure. So what I did was, I didn't go back to the treatment centre anymore. I felt complete and utter failure. Mm. I got involved in the drug scene. I was invited down to Killarney one night with all the heads, like. There was, um, what would you call it? When somebody was getting married, one of the guys was getting married, and they were, mm. what did they call it for the guy? Stag. Stag. So we were down in the hotel in Killarney, and we were sitting down, and um, no, never had coke. No, I had, had tried coke, but sitting down, happy enough, having a few joints and taking a few sweets or whatever was going, like, you know. But this fellow was sitting next to me and he, he slid over his hand. He said, do you want to try some of that? So I took the bag. I didn't know what he had. So I went up to the room and I said, it was about three quarters of an ounce of coke there, like. And I went up to the room and I'd done a few lines and snorted and and it was absolutely beautiful. That's the only way I can describe it, just. So I came down and he said, how was that? And he said, absolutely beautiful. So I went to give it to me. He said, no, no, that's yours, like. And I was like, what? Do you know what I mean? For me, like, yeah. so I got to like it. So I found out then, like, I started getting an ounce off and to start selling it to keep it going. And the first week I got an ounce, sure, it was gone. I had to go and get two. By the end of the month, I was getting a bar, a nine bar. Mm. Then it was going up after that. Can you talk to me about uh, going from... The, like in terms of society, mm -hmm. going from the ecstasy scene to the coke scene, that transition mm -hmm. was it like 
everybody was on the ease and then overnight mm-hmm. the core kind of took over or was it a gradual kind of well, episode that? Do you, do you, I suppose when I was taking Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. He's having done for 12 months, like, yeah. and I would do it every day, and I'd have to have 15 knees going to Henry's, like, yeah. and if they were, if Kelly's, Pink Kelly's came in at time, they were rubbish, I'd make sure I'd have thousand away from myself at stock, you know? Yeah. I'd make sure the biscuits would be there for myself, you know? Yeah. I'd have supply for the year, like, but when I when 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 I when I went into treatment that time and I got clean, yeah. there was the substances were gone. Yeah. But when I picked up the ch- when I felt like that failure in there anyway, when I took a bit of coke, yeah. that became the like, throwing the cocaine came into yeah. your life. Was the ecstasy a big scene in Cork still? Um, it was dying out. Yeah. But I was so detached. Yeah. I think I was so detached because my focus was gone to this numerical thing I found. Like this, this was the business like. And the late nineties, early noughties, the yeah. cocaine started really uh-huh. like, yeah. taking off in, in Cork. Yeah. I remember that time he started dying down in yeah. two thousand eight, two ninety not two thousand eight, ninety nine, yeah. ninety nine, yeah. two thousand, and then the cocaine. Well, Henry closed, yeah. Henry's closed, yeah. and things like that. We're still yeah. now. Yeah. It's kind of miss a match. No, if you look at twenty twenty two, it's like the cocaine is mm. up here. You've ninety yeah. percent, mm. and then you go ten percent. One or two buzzers, then around the gas. And I think that time then, because I wasn't, I never went back drinking. Yeah. And I remember being in clubs and the lads would have a drink tonight, you know, it's Christmas week. And I'd say, if I have a drink, we'll never be friends again. Yeah. But what I used to do was buy sweets, yeah. boys, and yeah. I'd, I'd make sure I have 20 on me all the time. And then one time I went to my GP and I was getting them, but then somebody talked to me about the right hypnol, you know? Yeah. The, the, the purple hearts. Lovely. So I went to my doctor and he said, hey, look, somebody gave me a Roy Hitlin or something the other night. He said, "Why hip not?" I said, "I was able to sleep." So he gave me a box, and I had to go back. The next it's a month. big upgrade from it's a D five, isn't it? Unbelievable! But I used to <laughs> take him in the morning, have one, and then do do a half gram or a gram straight away, and yeah. it would keep the edge off. Yeah. Then I started get two boxes, and then I'd have my name on the box to go up around the north side to buy them. Yeah, and that was what I thought to take the edge. The lads be lashing back to get stuff like that, drinking away. But the coke took off then, because once I left, once I left, once I walked away from service, especially Arbor House at that time, I hadn't, you know, With no support like nobody. There was no, there was nobody in my life like, um, it, it was horrible like. So how did you end up in the prison? And what year was that? Um, when 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 the coke took over, I was on the streets doing my my thing, and I was, 
I had a few little boys following me around all the time and it was just like being being torn out of it all the time, being stopped and searched under, being misuse of drugs act and stuff. But I was always thought it was a bit cuter if I had a grammar to me mouth, I'd swallow it, you know, with a bottle of water. And I, I moved, I, I, I met uh, I met my, my new partner at the time in St. Henry's. I was, I was clean at the time. And um, I, I was clean at the time when I met her. Um, but then I went back using. We had, we had two children as well. And that relationship, I, I moved to a place called Green Hills Court. And I remember driving down to Douglas Road one day. And uh, my two kids were in the car and I drove in. I was driving in there and next thing, blue lights came after me. And I ran to the room, ah, you snuck in under our nose. I said, I didn't sneak under nobody's nose. I live here, by. So the, I was in Douglas living in Green Hills Court and I was still involved in, in a bit of business, I call it, doing, doing a bit of drugs, you know. And then on the May weekend in 1999, after being pulled in and out all the time and chased around, like, I, I went over to meet this guy to give him a bit of hash like and uh, I left and I drove over to the swimming pool in Douglas and I was driving in and the guy was standing there and uh, I opened the window of the car and I had a 20 block or something in my hand from like something like that you know next thing I looked in the mirror I saw two cars coming and I said I need to pull in next thing I saw the blue lights coming out and going on like and uh, I was arrested mm. and I was brought back to the house they had a warrant for the house. They had a warrant for the house. So when I was standing at the house, they, they were all there and they brought me in and they were going through it like. And I felt confident because they had nothing in the house, you know. Mm. So when I came up standing outside the house, you know, brought me out and he put his hand on my shoulder. I think he said, I'm arresting him in section 15. So I said, what's what's section 15? Because I didn't know what he was on about. So he said, come with me and I'll show you. So he brought me around the corner, goes into the field, lifts up the sod. And he lifts up the sod. That's what I'm talking about, he said. So I think there was about six, six and a half ounces of hash and maybe a couple of grams of speed or something like that. That was much then, anyway. six yeah. and a half on, ounces. Of. So I was arrested that night, taken to Torker for a section. Uh, and um, that night then I was held. And it's funny, even though they were still inside, you know, I was able to tell them I had medication at home and I asked them to go and get it. And they got it, it was the, the, the purple hearts like that. How naive they were back oh, then. Yeah. You wouldn't get away with that now. <laughs> so they went over and got them. So what I did when I was taken out two to go to sleep, I took out four and I kept two for the morning because I knew it was going to be interrogation. And I suppose being interrogated that night then, like, and there was these two guys came in and one of them said to me, you're known to us as the quiet guy, like, you know. And then two more came in and one started started running back and forth. And I was I couldn't figure out what he was saying. Then he picks up the hash and he said, it had to be hot, did he use gloves on that? So I, I denied it at all, like, you know. And then they, they released me the following day. And um, I was in bits, like, you know. And I went, I decided, like, the game was up, you know. And I went back to our house. I, maybe a week or two later, I, I drowned in my sorrows and, as much as I could with what I could take. So I went back to our house again and I contacted them and I'm saying, like, look, I have a trial coming up. I know I'm going to jail, like. I'm not going to bullshit you, but I know this is happening. I want to go into prison clean and I want to get my time done and come out clean. That's all I want to do. So the assessment I felt went on for a long time, you know, but I eventually got in there. I got clean. I done the intensive phase again. I went on to aftercare and I asked them if I could stay on because my trial was coming up. And um, I remember being charged presented with the book of evidence and stuff like that and going across to um, the courthouse, John Sheedy at the time, you know. And I remember when the, when the trial came up, like, and um, I went to Camden Quay and um, 
I was nervous, like, I was clean. Uh, I stayed on the aftercare. And I remember going to a counsellor and I have a host at the time, like, and I wanted to talk to her, yeah, because the anxiety was building up. Mm-hmm. And I had nobody to trust, you know, and you don't trust nobody in the game that like that, that you're in, I couldn't anyway. But I went up to this counsellor and I said to her, look, um, my trial is up to my, my sentence, my, my, my se- I'm being sentenced tomorrow. And she says to me, you know, she says, trust in your higher powers will feel, you know. And I said, no, no, no. I said, you're not hearing me. I'm actually being sentenced. She says, I know. Trust in your higher powers will feel. But the court, when I went out to be sentenced, they, they, they decided that, that um, they needed a report from the councillor in our house. And when the councillor came in, I'll always remember the judge turned around and he said to her, like, um, you know, about this, like, that. He, he asked her some questions and she said, he said, is there evidence of Frank Horgan trying to get help before and now? She said, yeah, Frank Horgan came to, to our house in 1981. He couldn't stop using, came back again, he completed the program. He's in aftercare at the moment, so it's all in his file. So the judge put his head down and he you know, he was saying something and I didn't know, like, because um, I was living over in a, in a flat at the time in, in um, Victoria Road. And when I had decided to stop, I had drugs in my wardrobe. And I went down to the body of mine living underneath and I knocked on his door. And I just blew down my fair and I said, take these for me. And that Friday night, that Friday night, it was the 16th of June. Because it was the May weekend, I got busted. Mm. I went to a meeting and the drugs stopped. And I gave him all the drugs and I started going back. And I, I, I got involved in meetings and I got into our host, thank God, you know. And thank God it hasn't, I haven't looked back since then, right? But I had to go into prison when I got sentenced that day. Sure, I hadn't a clue what the judge was saying. Like, and then I heard seven years, like, because my buddy says to me, what do you think you're going to get? I said, at least seven. And uh, when, I, when I got to seven, then I heard another seven mention, like, and I, I didn't know what he was talking about, like, because you don't understand what they're telling yeah, yeah, yeah. So he gave me two seven, two seven years consecutive possession with intent to supply. Concurrent. Con, uh, consec, uh, concurrent, one after, one, run them in together. Run them in together, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, my knees just went weak, like, you know, because mm. I've seen people inside with, with three, with, I remember one guy had three keys, like, and he got two years. Mm. And, you know, the whole matter of if you're a good talker, a good walker. Yeah. And, and, like, I remember when I went to Troy leaving, when I went down to the courthouse in Camden Quay, don't, Tony comes in, right? You know what I'm talking about? Tony comes in, like, and he comes up to me. He says, how are you pleading? I looked at him and I said, like, I was still arrogant, right? And I said, pleading for what? What are you talking about? So the next thing he lost is, you know, oh, I've got to get the fucking main witness in here. I said, do what you want, you know? So there was two more up for a manslaughter charge that I knew from the north side. So I waited outside to see what was happening outside the courthouse. And the two of them comes out to me and they says, your trial date's fixed for, I said, for when? For the 8th or the 10th of May or something. I said, that's tomorrow morning. So the trial date was fixed for the following morning. So I was standing there like, and I said, I have to come back tomorrow. To, the trial was going to go ahead the following day. like, And um, I made a decision then the following morning to come to trial. I called uh, my solicitor and I said, um, will you talk to Tony and ask him? If I plead guilty, will they give me continuing bail? That's all I want. Mm. So that was greed. So I went in and I went in. I think the jury would be sworn in. So I went in. They were saying it was a plea. So that was, they were dismissed. So I pleaded guilty to charges. And um, I. So you got the seven year for the hash? I, what was the second one? One for possession, one for for supplying. Oh, was, and they did you fucking. That was dirty that was, enough, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a big one. Like, yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, and the, what they had, their, their argument was they were after me for 12 and a half years and they, it was a significant... They usually take the last one kind of into yeah. consideration yeah. and just run with the... Yeah. You, you had no convictions for drugs at this stage? No, but look, I've had previous convictions for, for car theft, burglary. I, I have, I think, maybe 18 or 19 convictions for uh, dr drunken driving, maybe two occasions, stealing vehicles. But they wanted you for a while and that was yep. their opportunity. Yeah, they were saying that this was going on for a long time and that their, their point was I was after looting a few sort of surveillance operations because they were after targeting me in different houses because I was living, moving house all over the city. And they were after raiding different houses ahead, but they never got nothing. But they, they used that then saying that I was after looting a lot of surveillance operation, operations and that this was significant as far as they were concerned. They said it was a cunning and devious drug dealer. Mm. But you turned it all around? Yeah, I think when I got back to Arbor House that time, and I, I got through that through that, that intensive phase again and, and hung on to aftercare, went to meetings. And I was going to nine meetings a week. Yeah. And when I was in treatment then, they were saying to me they wanted me to cut back meetings. I said no, because I didn't want to go back where I'm yeah. coming from at the time. So I started kept going to meetings Wednesday and Saturday. It was two meetings a day and it was at a meeting every night. And was it difficult to maintain the meetings in prison? Um, that first night that they called for the prison when I was sentenced, I was standing over at the back of the wall in the old prison and I couldn't, when they called for the NA meeting, I couldn't take the step forward because I was thinking, they all fucking look at me, look at yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And everybody knew who I was like. Yeah. And then the guy next to me turned around and he says to me, uh, come on, we're going for the buzz. So I said, yeah. So yeah. I walked into the meeting and I was delighted because once I got in, I kept going then yeah. Friday night for the NA and then I used to go to the A meetings. I got into the school then doing pottery and stuff like that. Um, selling my pottery at Christmas time, doing bean bags, yeah. and keeping myself busy. And I had the NA books inside because I couldn't get them in because of the hardcovers. So somebody came up with the idea of taking the hardcovers off and they got them in. And I so remember you used your time. Yeah. You used your yeah. time instead of your time using you. Yeah. Kind of like you to me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the time inside in prison then, like on the streets that time, I wasn't familiar with heroin. Mm. But while I was in prison, like it yeah. was just everywhere in your face, yeah. like. Um, people were just, you know. So I had... What, this, what year was that? I was sentenced in 2000. 2000. There was a lot of... There was much gear on Cork test not, not in the city, but probably... Yeah. A lot of, there was a lot of Dublin heads down as yeah, well. Yeah. And it was it was plentiful. Yeah. But I had decided before going in, I was going to mix with nobody because I said that guy coming up to me in the air shaking my hand yeah. or, you know, people sending a package under my door. I, I knew if I didn't change that when I go back in the next one, I'd be looking at 10 plus, you know. So I done, I done the 12 months. I went down for, I, I'll always remember going down for my review, you know. Mm. And I had the help us over. My brother called and I, they said it was the guards and I thought it was another charge I had. When I went down to court that day, I think there was 30, 31 of us up for review. And I was the last one. And when I went in, called in, the drug squad went up in the box like and said, uh, Your Honour, we don't want him out of, we don't want him released. He's not out of circulation long enough. And the judge looked down and he looked at all the stuff that I'd done. My urines were clean and they were pulling me at random. So, but I wasn't worried about that. Yeah. I just knew that I had to get through this phase at the time. Yeah. So when the judge turned around, he looked at everything. He says, you know, I'm very happy with you. You're free to go. Wow. I was delighted. So you got a review after 12 months? After 12 months. Fuck it, that was not bad. Yeah, yeah, that was grand. Bad, and yeah. look, what I'd done focused on in prison was myself. And yeah. I think I was able to go back and he was able to see there was no... Mm. I, I just didn't want to be going. And I said that time when they got released then tied in with but, park lights. But there's a great there's there's something to take from this, right? Mm. Like you were absolutely 
adamant that you were going to get get recovery into your life. Mm. Like you weren't fooling no one, right? For that twelve months and before that, while you were in treatment, you knew that you wanted to get sober yeah. and you wanted to to be abstinent from 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 drugs. Mm. You know, and some fellas would be smart enough to to do it the other way and they yeah. get out and go back in and you know, but like it's it's a great example to show like you can stay mm. sober. Mm. And absent from drugs in prison, if you put your head down, yeah, you know it's there not. Was, no, you can't get involved in the dramas and the politics. Stay clear of everything else. Well, the decision was not to mix with nobody, and there was hooch up in the A three at the time, yeah. and it was like because I was people knew I was in for drugs. You, you were okay. You, you get looked after. You know that kind of way. Mm. But I, I, I knew that that's not what I wanted. Mm. I, I knew that. I knew that when I go back out, I, I'd be exactly the same, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was tough in prison. Yeah. Do you know, the way I can describe it to the Sundays, right? The weekends were horrible. Saturday, you have the roast beef. Or Sunday, you have roast beef or roast pork. In the summer and the winter, it, it's either salad and Mondays or the stew. Mm-hmm. Do you know? I'm walking, well, I used to walk out the yard and watch the phone calls, you know? Watch people slamming their, their hands on doors to get out to the hospital to pick up the package. Mm-hmm. Do you know all this stuff and then the phone calls and the air going at the visits like all for drugs like mm. and do you know what I mean Just, do you know why people can't cope like mm. like you've some of the most traumatised people in society mm. inside in prisons yeah right and and I always say this I'm not justifying anybody's yeah. actions here mm. but you have some of the most traumatised people inside in prisons mm. most of them most of them are addicted to drugs and alcohol okay mm. and what what are you taking away from from somebody when you lock them up. Yeah. The one thing that gets them through life mm-hmm. is drugs and alcohol mm-hmm. and that suits them. So like you can imagine why mm-hmm. people will go to any lengths mm-hmm. to be able to get what they need mm-hmm. to be able yeah. to help them. Remember back in the day, do you remember the old jugs? They were hard plastic. They plastic ones, but yeah. they used to be breaking each other's hands with the jugs to get out of the, the hospital, hospital yeah. to get drugs out yeah. of the toilet and the hospital. Yeah. Gas and yeah. that. Yeah. Frank, we're going to speed it up a bit now because yeah. we're a bit tight for time. But... Uh, like myself and Timmy, you linked in with Cock Alliance and mm-hmm. Sheila. You went into education yeah. and started to rebuild your life. Mm-hmm. But I'm interested in talking about what you're doing now. I suppose, look, when I came out and I returned to education, Stefan Neffer, for two years, I'd done my degree in social care and I went down and done counselling through Arbor House. Yeah. And I'm accredited counsellor as well, but I never take credit for it. Brilliant. So, look, I, I got a job when I came out of prison. I went to Simon as a volunteer. And I believe you were there, sir. I was, yeah, yeah. I went as a volunteer. In, in yeah. many capacities. Yeah. And I went there and I just said it to them, look, I'm only out of prison. If it's a problem, I understand. So they, they took me in as a volunteer. I applied for relief. I got relief. I went into outreach. For, I was in the shelter working in the projects. So I spent 13 and a half years at Simon. Yeah. And I, I, then I started working with people that were using IV drug users and I watched them transition from smoking to injecting. And then I became a needle exchange worker. And then I was doing a lot of training around that. And then nine years ago, um, this job came up and, and I, I, I was I was fearful taking it because it was a two-year contract and I was saying, like, who's going to hire me in two years' time? So I took the job anyway. And part of the job was two, two days a week to Mitchtown, the YHS was a half day and two and a half days on the streets. On the streets doing and what? I, 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 what I do is go out and I, I link in with, I, I visit areas where people were using drugs. Yeah. What's in places like that? Yeah, they'd be hotspots, we yeah. call them, right? So people would be buy drugs and look to the nature of the game and people buy. They're sick. They need to use where they're at. Yeah. So a lot of people were discarding drug litter. So my job is to go out and kind of identify these areas, clean them up. But it also gave me a platform to engage with these people. So then 
after two and a half years of doing this, my boss came to me one day, he says to me, we've good news for you. And I said, we're getting a safe injecting room. He said, no, no, we're taking you on full time. So the Mitchestown piece went and I focused on the city. So the platform I have today, particularly Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, I do street work. So I work Tuesdays in the YHS, but under 24 zones, substance misuse. I'm in the prison doing the Loxall training. YHS is what? The Youth Health Service. Yeah. And then I, I work in the prison on Tuesday and I do groups in Arbor House for the Loxall training. And Can you know, naloxone? Yeah. There's two versions of it. There's an injection and the nasal. What's more common? Well, I suppose at the time when you look at it, the first, when I started my job, the first week, my line manager says to me, look, you're, I know you're starting next week, you're on this. When you come in, you're going to ward for training Monday and Tuesday. Then when you come out back, you control this out. At the time, there was only the injection one available. And naloxone is used to reverse the effects of opiate drugs like yeah. heroin, morphine, yeah. oxycontin, tramadol. So, there was, that was the only one available at the time, but now there's a bit of legislation change, so the, the nasal one is there now. But they're both doing the same. Yeah. You have some people who maybe be afraid. I to train a lot needle, of, yeah. yeah, I train a lot of frontline staff in home services, but you might have somebody who has a fear of needles, so they, they'll spray one. They're both the same medication. Yeah. It's like anodone and paracetamol. Yeah, you know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah. So what's just the difference? difference? Oh, on the nasal one and the, well, the, the, the injection, you have to go into yeah. the muscle with the nasal muscle. spray. You don't have no, 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 no needle. Does it work just as neat? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. 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 The injection. I suppose sometimes, like when I'm out these people, if somebody went over in front of me and they're there, you know, if you give them the nasal one, it'll bring them around straight away. With the injection one, you have to give one dose at a time to bring somebody around. Mm. Because if you give the whole lot together, if they come around, they're looking at the world completely different with their they're going to be dying sick and you just we messed up the whole day. Before, yeah. you know? But I'll I suppose... Look, happy yeah. But the platform I have then for, for going and visiting these places three days, so I deal with the business community in town as well. So if they have people... Drug like, litter and... Drug litter. And if somebody was using it in car parks or underground flats or whatever car parks, I go in and, and then work with them for... And our, our business owner, are they frustrated? Are they angry? Are they understanding? Or how... A lot of them, I think, in the last couple of years have coming around. They're all asking me, like, they're all in favour. There should be some place for people to go and have a place like that because it's more of a health issue. But what I do is come in and we work for a solution. And my solution, as I said to one manager, one place one day, because, look, he used to speak to me. And I said to him, give me two weeks work with these people. And after when I got them assessed and everything was done, when they were on the methadone programme and they were stable, he rang me up and he said, no, I see what you're talking about. Because if I was asking these people to move on, I'm only going down and having somebody else having the same conversation. So I asked for a bit of time. And, and then he says, I see. And I've been at a meeting recently where girls have zero tolerance. And I know there's issues around the businesses. But I met the manager at the same meeting. I said, you know the way I work like? Mm. Oh, no, man, is great. But that's not the solution. If I can connect somebody into a service and a stable, yeah. that's the solution. Because you're only displacing them. So the next business. That's all. Can you talk to me just before we finish up? Do you know, oftentimes we'd hear people on Neil Prendeville mm. and PJ Coogan, the local radio stations, they're talking about the heroin issue and cock is getting worse and worse and mm. worse. But like, is it getting worse or is homelessness getting worse yeah. and it's a more visible form of drug use or what do you think? I suppose, look, I'm going to be honest with you. A lot of people ask me that question. And for me personally, I never get involved. Yeah. The reason why when I get into this debate, things getting better or worse, I lose my focus on the client. Mm. My focus is on the individual that comes to me and says, I want help. And if I get into saying things are better, when I go out and I'm, I'm in the bushes or I'm in, I'm in place where nobody else will probably yeah. go, when somebody reaches out and says, I want help, or when they check me out, they ring me up like, so when I get into this thing, it's getting better or worse. Yeah. 
I suppose for me, all I see is OPQs all the right. time because it seems to my, I suppose, my, 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 my area. Like, is there a big demand for your service? Yeah, I've had two colleagues in the I had a, co a colleague with me for a year and a half. I had a guy before that, but look, I, there's a job being advertised and closing date to date. So I'm hoping to have a new colleague. But look, you know, you're trying to do assessments. You're trying to get people in. You're trying to deal with the business. You're trying to deal with drug later, you know, and I covered three lead in as well. Yeah, yeah, do, you know, you know, do you know if 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 there's people listening to this here now and they wanted to know how to just to understand drug users mm -hmm. and the streets and stuff like that, what would what would be a few words you would say to them maybe to for them to just try to understand why people are where they are on the streets? I think people are quick to judge. Like you know, there's a lot of stigma attached to people, especially around heroin, right? Do you know, and there's the chunkies, they're all this and that. I know a lot of these people, and I've got to know them over the years, mm -hmm. none of them want to be there. They've just made the decision, like people experiment with drugs, and unfortunately it happened to be heroin. And when you when you know the process of heroin, people try heroin, we'll say for a Friday night, they'll do it next week, Friday night. After a while it grows, Saturday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I had a guy saying to me, like, you know, I came to a realisation that I was in trouble, so I stopped. The next thing, he was experiencing the withdrawals. Mm -hmm. And then he has to use to kill that. Yeah. And I think if they understand, once people get addicted, once once they transition to from from experimenting to dependency, it's it, it's not like getting a bottle of wine and leaving the fridge and having a week's time. Like when 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 they're experiencing withdrawals, it's like a flu-like symptoms coming on rapidly. They're they're sweating profusely. They they have cramps in their stomach. Cold. They're, they're going to have pains all over the body, and they're going to have diarrhea. And, and, when, what, and what does heroin do on the other side of it when, then? When they take that, then it, it takes that sickness away. There's no more fun, there's no more high. They have to use to keep the sickness at bay. And like over my nine, previous nine years, nearly nine years, all of those that engage, like, do you know, just want to get their lives back on track. Yeah. And, and and like, it's a very hard game to get out of. And especially like, I suppose when you're talking about, you know, like I didn't understand nothing about trauma and I think I've had a tin lock here. So I didn't know what I was running for all my life, yeah. you know. And I think when you put down the drugs and you get a bit of space, and I found a lovely therapist at the time, and I've done a lot of work, you know. I remember going to her for, I was looking for, uh, you know, some personal development done and I had 140 sessions done with her. But I had to look at all that stuff of why, what was making me run towards this stuff as well, you know. Yeah. Why was I using I was trying to escape all the hurt and the, the stuff in my life. But these people, a lot of them don't want to be there. And mm. people say, it's their own fault. It's not. Mm. Do you know what I mean? They made decisions. Nobody, yeah. I'm looking for somebody who has never made a decision. I haven't found one yet. These people just made, like I've made bad decisions, mm. but now I've made good decisions. And look, sometimes I meet people that I wouldn't have seen for 10 or 15 years and I get to look like, you know. I think I think you're a prime example of... of what we try to make clear to everybody, everybody mm. that listens and anybody that will listen, you're a prime example of of change mm. and Thank how you. once you get to know the person and the context of their background mm. and how they are now. Because as I'm listening to you after the conversation about the early days, mm. back in the addiction days and stuff, I know the person that's sitting in front of me. Like if you separated the two conversations and I would have never thought that you were ever involved in criminality or mm. drugs. But to transfer from one thing to the other mm. 
it, it like that's what that's why we do this podcast is is to open up people's minds yeah. and get them to just think and maybe look at someone's background mm. and where they came from you know the environment they grew up in the school and all this stuff and the mental health and the addiction and then to see right look at a change and mm. that's when people's perception of another human yeah. being changes is when they get to know them from their background and who they are now mm. you know and that's what we're trying to do change that stigma around people who are on the streets people inside in prisons mm. you know and as we always say we're not trying to just say all these people are good and justify mm. all their actions it's just listen give it give a, a chance and have yeah. it just I, I think the perception that people have and you know the labeling of scumbags or drug addicts or whatever everybody makes mistakes and i would suggest don't judge somebody for what they do or what mistakes they make like try to understand where they're coming from we all make mistakes and when i have students out with me as well you know just to make things clear when I have students out when we come up from a situation and somebody's sleeping in the bushes and that's what they're home, I'd always say, you know, that's sad. And they'd say, yeah, I said, remember, it could be them coming out visiting us next week. Mm, yeah. You know? Frank, if so, enough people wanted to say hi to you or reach out to you or give mm. you a bit of feedback, can they do that? Are you online anywhere? Or? I, I'm not. I, I mean, look, I have my work phone. That's it. I, I don't do social media because I try to trick. When I go home from work, I, I try not to come into town because, look, yeah. You know, I see a lot. It's not for me personally. When I see all this, I have to, I have to use a question, Frank. Mm -hmm, definitely. Do you get supervision for, yeah. for 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 what you do on the streets? Because I have, that yeah. must be a really really difficult job. Like it you is. Come come across really dangerous situations and situations where somebody's probably dead or dying in front of you yeah. because you're going to places where nobody else would go to. Exactly. So you have supervision. I have supervision. I have in internal and external supervision. And like I have colleagues as well. I can sit down and go for coffee because, you know, some people say to me, like, you can go home and they can leave this outside the office door. I, I can go home sometimes and it takes a while to wash off because the yeah. sadness. But you're talking about other human beings. That's what you're talking about here. And people who just made the same mistakes that I made. I was blessed because I, I think taking the time in prison to recover and stay, stay clean. It gave me time and the ability to go back and get more help outside mm -hmm. of Arab House to look at why why was I going this way when I need to be going that way? I was running all of them. I didn't know who I was, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think having that outside help and having to be able to trust somebody that you can tell the stuff to. Yeah. You know, it's my belief, God or whoever or mm -hmm. the universe or whatever people want to call it, they give people like us these really difficult mm -hmm. backgrounds so we can go on and do roles that mm. we continue to do today in our lives, like yeah. what you're doing on the, on, on the streets with the lads, you know, what we're doing here with the yeah. podcast, you know, yeah. and That's others who just like us, yeah. there's millions, there's fucking loads, yeah. but we'll all individually do what we're doing because of our our, our lived experiences in yeah. addiction and prison and whatever. Yeah. That's, and that's it. That's your purpose. Yeah. If you can just understand that. But I think sometimes the one kind of, I suppose, weakness I still see I have, I never, I never say, well done. I, yeah. My focus is always because for me, it's like once I have somebody into a, into a, a, a stabilization program, you have the next person and you focus and you're always kept going. There's always somebody pulling you. There's always somebody in crisis and, and you do your best for them and they know they know if you're serious, if you're there, and if you're there, they'll know. If they don't come, they'll come with you. If you can just understand, and sometimes you have to come down and meet them where they're at and yeah. be at their level. Yeah. Me going in as this guy, I'm the counselor, I know best. I know nothing. <laughs> I just want to connect with you 
And if you want to come with me, I promise you, I'll put 100% behind you. Yeah, and yeah. I will knock at doors for you. Well, you're doing God's work in Cork City. Mm, and no better book for the job either. Thank I you. hope you get a good partner with your latest recruitment drive. I'm hoping so. And it's an important role. Yeah. And this has been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks very Thanks much for your indeed. time today. Thanks. I really appreciate it. We'll see everybody next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.